How's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 145. I recorded it in Schenectady, New York last summer, and I sat down uh, in Union College uh, in the kitchen of my friend Yasmin and had a conversation with Dr. Kaywana Rayburn, and she's an assistant professor of behavioral economics uh, at Union College. Very interesting woman, and uh, as some of you might be thinking, economics, how can there be a podcast about economics that is vaguely interesting to me if I'm not into economics? And I promise you, there was some really interesting stuff in there. She did not, she did not get too heady with me, thank goodness, so... Uh, it was a fun conversation. We talked about all sorts of things, about the global impact of a singular person, about farming, about women and STEM. Um, we talked about games that behavioral psychologists play to learn about uh, people. And I don't know, it was really cool and interesting. I enjoyed myself. And she referenced some cool books, which in fact I am getting this week. And all those books that she referenced, of course, I put on the uh, links page on heyhumanpodcast.com. So Dr. Rayburn and I had a really great chat. I do want to have a little moment to reference the fact that within our conversation, uh, I made an offhanded comment about, uh, I think it was about rats saying that, you know, about their decision-making skills, that it's not, not like a human's. And that's actually incorrect. And I know that that's incorrect, so I'm not even sure why I said that in the conversation. And in a weird uh, twist of fate today, uh, my friend Dr. Brian Swiss, uh, who actually was on Hey Human episode 77, he uh, and I were chatting. I asked him if he had read uh, a particular book that Kaywana had referenced that Dr. Rayburn had brought up, and uh, he had read it. And in fact, then he sent me this citation uh, about that that references Brian's work and. In it was a comment about, or the whole section of the citation was talking about how rodents perceive uh, future events uh, based on reward or punishment. And all that to say is rats are people too. That's, and I, I denied that moment for rat dumb everywhere. So <laughs> I wanted to correct that. I'm super nerding out right now. But anyway, uh, so I had a great conversation <laughs> with Dr. Rayburn and there was a lot of ambient noise during our conversation. I did my best to weed some of that stuff out, but but certainly there'll be a couple moments where you might be distracted, and I hope that you hang in there because um, it's worth the listen. Uh, in other news, of course, my usual stuff, the links page I mentioned already has tons of great references from this episode, the, the links page from heyhumanpodcast.com. Also, if you are an Amazon person, and you shop on Amazon, please do th- do so <laughs> through the Amazon portal on heyhumanpodcast.com. It helps support Hey Human, which I appreciate very much. Um, please rate and review Hey Human on iTunes because that helps a ton. Speaking of iTunes, if you're into music, uh, you can find my music under Susan Ruth on iTunes. Yes, it's true. I do lots of different things, and music is one of them. Um, what else? Uh, social media. Hey Human Podcast is on Facebook. It's on Instagram. And I personally am on Twitter, Instagram, and so- and Facebook. Is that all of them? I don't know. <laughs> Under Susan Ruthism. You can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you. And I think that's all the 
stuff. I'm sure I'm missing something, but I'm always missing something. So we must do what we must do. All right. Thank you for listening. Um, thank you for being you and being in the world and being a human and rats are people too. Here we go. Hi, Kiwana Rayburn. How Hi. are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's thank really you. good. Thank you for uh, being on Hey Human. <laughs> you are a professor of... Economics. Yeah. Well, I guess specifically it, behavioral economics is my job title. Yeah. Beha I'm going to move this just a hair closer to you because I'm loud. <laughs> yes. And I do have a tendency to sometimes be a little... Quieter. Quieter. So. Yeah. Um, behavioral economics, when I was reading, I, I read up on you, obviously, a, a tad. I don't like to do it too much because I really want the conversation to be organic. But um, what exactly, I, I looked at, I, I kept looking at that behavioral, and I, I found one paper where I was able to read the first paragraph. It's all, the academic papers are all on lockdown, so yes, you need codes yes, and it's things. like um, journals are hard to get access to. Which is a real bummer. Even sometimes as an academic, there's some, like unless the library system has access to, say, yeah. and there's some that I use in my classes that I can't get the papers to. Which is strange. You would think that knowledge would be provided regardless. Yeah, you know? and it's not every academic who has a finding that makes it to the news. Yeah. So it's really hard sometimes to get your story out there. Yeah, I'm going to hack that system <laughs> so that I can read some of these papers. Um, but the, the little bit that I did, so first of all, explain what behavioral economics is, because I think a lot of people are, are, don't have any clue. Economics, everyone's like, oh yeah, I know what that is. But mm -hmm. So behavioral economics is really the um, introduction of insights from psychology, from sociology, from anthropology into what was the standard economic theory. So um, most economists in the past would say an, a human and individual making decisions is self-interested, um, only cares about maximizing their own outcomes or their own utility without really taking into consideration anything else. And with behavioral economics, there's a lot of findings that show that maybe people don't really make decisions in that way. There's a lot of um, what we call anomalies mm -hmm. that don't quite fit with the standard economic theory. And so behavioral economics kind of birthed from incorporating some of these anomalies into economic theory. It seems strange that there was a time that, or that, that the standard is to not look at all these other influences and it, so many things impact our decision-making skills from day to day. Mm -hmm. True. So I guess for economists, especially when we're building models, we try to simplify the reality into a framework that's easy to, or at least as easy as possible, to um, kind of get insights. And a lot of the times we see these agents or um, individuals as having very similar preferences and Really, it's because we're trying to get some insight without cluttering the model too much. And as you get higher and higher in economics, it becomes a lot more mathematical. And getting mathematical models that can, um, in at least some way, capture the things that we're interested in finding out, it's, it's difficult with a lot of the things that um, we consider as individuals when we make decisions. What brought you to this? Field because I, I don't know, mm -hmm. especially as a woman, right? The women are not the, the, the statistically yes. women in math. They don't really go. They don't go to the parties together. <laughs> Turn us up a little bit more. Um, 
so what what was it that, that drew you to it? Um, so I guess in economics in general, we do have an underrepresentation mm-hmm. of women. So about twenty to thirty percent of um, PhD graduates are are women. And as it goes higher and higher, say the assistant professor, associate professor, the numbers and the percentages drop. Mm-hmm. And that's something that as a department at Union College, we have been trying to see how do we get more women to come into the major and trying to make it more women friendly. We actually had an event yesterday with. Uh, an alumni who came and talked about what she wished she knew. She knew, what's the? She wished she, she knew wish then. She knew then, before getting yeah. her first job, mm-hmm. which was a really interesting talk. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, I started in economics, I guess partly because I like math. Um, this was a really long time ago. But uh, so I'm from Grenada mm-hmm. in the Caribbean, and we follow the British system or very similar to the British system in terms of education. Mm-hmm. So after you do high school, which finishes at like 16 years old, you would go to a two-year college where you do um, A-levels, which is British, but also you do an associate degree. And there I studied math, economics, computing, and accounting. And I really was going to study math and computing at college. But then I worked in the Ministry of finance in Grenada, which is really the part of the government that deals with economic policies mm-hmm. and things like that, and that really got me interested in studying economics further. So I did that as my undergrad and my master's, and did my PhD. I got involved in a project on food security in the Caribbean, where part of it was using economic experiments to try to see why farmers don't adopt new technologies very much. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what got me interested in moving from economics in general to experimental and behavioral economics. It's really interesting to me that, that you can take um, an economic model and somehow put it on the way humans think or feel. It, it, it lends itself <laughs> to the idea that you know we are a computer up here, right? In, in, in a way yeah, to we, some extent, yeah. that we follow these patterns, you know, and that the human brain is, is pattern-based in its... Well, I guess the idea is that everyone probably has different preferences and heterogeneous preferences, but on average, maybe this model can capture aggregate behavior. Mm-hmm. And if you pick a, someone from, uh, randomly from the population, maybe this model might. Um, explain their behavior, maybe not, but on average in the population, maybe this has some sort of explanatory power. So what did you find with the farmers? Why did they not wish to um, So that's a finding in development economy, economics a lot, that in developing countries, there's what we under utilization of new technologies. And the project that I was working on, we were seeing whether framing the choice to adopt a new technology as providing information as a public good to mm-hmm. others makes a difference in people's decision making and it didn't seem to make a difference but what we did find was that the farmers actually learned from information in the way that you'd expect so if you had good outcomes they would gravitate towards the new technology of sorts if they had bad outcomes that they would gravitate away from it that makes sense um, which makes sense. So providing information and having that information potentially be organically provided might be a way to increase that. Mm -hmm. Um, Assuming, of course, that we want adoption of new technologies, which 
also can be potentially a contentious. When you speak to new issue. technology, you're talking about antibiotic and things like that, because these are small farms um, you're talking about, right? So it's, sometimes it's just getting a new variant of mm. a crop that they're already doing, sure. or it might be new equipment, it might be new fertilizer. So it really depends on the situation. The farmers that we were working with were small cash crop farmers, so it would be those types of sure. innovations there. Do, do you, um, is one of your specialties uh, then to deal with women farmers? Are there very many of those? Um, so not necessarily my specialty in terms of the types of farmers, but with our sample and the farmers we were working with, we did have a high proportion, about 40% of the people who participated in our experiment were women. Um, that's less representative of the area. Mm. This was in Guyana, which, in, which is in South America and part of the Caribbean. I think it's probably more around 25 to 30% of the farmers are women, but also because it's households. So in the household, you'd have both the man and the woman who typically run the farm together. Mm. The Family husband, farm type yeah, situation. Exactly. So husband probably has more decision-making weight, but it's still a unit that performs that um, job. Is that a pretty even killed um, family dynamic or is it still pretty patriarchal? Or? Well, I wouldn't want to speak too much about, because I'm not an expert, especially for the Guyanese situation, mm -hmm. they do have a lot of these extended family oh. type situations mm -hmm. where you have generations mm -hmm. of a uh, family living in the same household. Um, yeah, I don't, yeah. I'm not an expert there. It's funny, Americans yeah. really eschew that, and yet, you know, a lot of the immigrant families are still, mm -hmm. that's a huge part of the life, and it seems to me so logical to have yep. these large family units. It seems like so much it's healthier mm -hmm. as far as your mental well-being your, your the, the natural the innate tribalism that people have all that mm -hmm. stuff to have you know you have the elders that can raise the babies and you know and all that it just makes so much sense yeah and that's something we don't see very much no. in the typical no. US family and there's actually a large Guyanese population in Schenectady interesting living in Guyana I was there for three months in one period in about three weeks and it was familiar yet different mm. for from um, where I grew up in Grenada which is a tiny island a hundred thousand people so yeah sometimes you like you really get to see the similarities and the differences in terms of how people go about their daily lives composition of the population sure. like the dynamic between different people yeah and the politics that surround yes. each region and exactly and then the influence and uh, you know, history, mm -hmm. dark history of, uh, yeah. 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 So yeah, Grenada <laughs> itself has some interesting history. Most, well, some Americans would remember it from the 1980s 80s, with 83, 83 yeah. when the Reagan administration went in after a mm, overthrow of sorts of the Maurice. already yeah. revolutionary yeah. government. Yeah. So. Were you there then? No. I <laughs> oh, you don't seem that old. No, I was not. I was okay. actually born the year after. Okay. In 1984, but my parents um, were there. My grandfather actually was imprisoned by the um, revolutionary government for a few years because he was part of the previous government. Right. And um, it's interesting hearing stories, and everybody has their different perspectives about what happens. Um, just the way that that 
time in history is called. Some people would call um, it an invasion. Mm -hmm. Some people would call it an intervention. So it kind of like... What does your grandfather call it? Uh, well, he died mm, um, a few years later. In 1993, okay. I think. But I think he lent more on the intervention oh, side of the stream. But like for me, it's it's difficult um, delving into that. The politics of it, yeah. The politics of, of it because it's it's complex. It is it's complex. Yeah, I yeah. agree with that. And they've been a few like truth and reconciliation committees, but looking back, I'm not sure that we've actually delved and healed mm. as much as we thought think we have from yeah well I, I think not only do things like that affect a people culturally as it moves on through but mm -hmm. genetically i really do i think that something gets altered in one's i mean i'm being a little bit you know woo woo about it but i do think that it turn it, it alters one's dna how mm -hmm. one feels about things and then that gets passed down yeah you know so yeah. um Let's get back to the farming thing. And I'm sort of focused on that because I do find it really fascinating, especially in um, a modern industrialized world where <clears throat> how people farm, mm -hmm. for example, here versus other places. And that I think that we could probably learn a lot from some of those smaller farms about, you know, how they cultivate the, their soils. And, you know, we've forgotten, I think, some of the old school techniques mm -hmm. um, to, to our detriment. And now the food is got a lot of issues and mm -hmm. would turn more and more to science and all that but <clears throat> wait so I know you're not a farmer so <laughs> you're looking no. like, I'm not a farmer I know you're not a farmer you know, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm not sure how much insight I can give into no, no, the actual but, farming but, so as I, again when I tried to access some of your articles and couldn't um I had to glean just from what little bit I, I could read but it, it did look like um the the, the women and agriculture and economics is is something that is important to you that you speak to because mm -hmm. um, I saw your name referenced in all these things I just couldn't read them you know what I mean <laughs> yeah so we um, myself and a number of colleagues were we haven't really gotten to the paper in a while but we were doing a paper on gendered agriculture within Guyana and St. Lucia and some of the other countries we worked with um, so this was not my project, but it was part of that larger project that um, it was uh, that over uh, overarched the entire thing. And one of my colleagues, she did a lot of focus groups with um, women and well, women farmers, trying to see like insights in terms of um, decision making uh, powers within the household and bargaining and things like that. And uh, overall, and these were, I think, two countries she looked at, St. Lucia and Guyana, is similar in terms of the types of um, issues and um, things that they found relevant. And as I talked a little bit about bargaining power within the household and how much do women have in terms of decision making with what is planted on the farms, for example. Um, do they have their own plots that they work on separately from their um, spouse or their partners? And in development economics, there's also a lot of work looking at decision making within these types of smaller households. It's been a while since I've um, looked at the paper we we're supposed to be starting work on it again this year mm -hmm. but from what I remember um, 
at least with the farmers we worked with, there was relatively high amounts of decision-making power in terms of women versus um, men within the household. Mm -hmm. And it might be just this population and not necessarily extends to different part of the world. So my next question, of course, would be why? Um, that's a good question. Um, it might be culturally, it might be, because I'm thinking from my own experience and growing up in Grenada, um, I've never felt that there's significantly high barriers in terms of um, the possibilities and the opportunities for women and their uh, ability to achieve different things. Um, I didn't grow up in a farming household, um, so I can't speak to that and whether that's different from my own perception sure. growing up. Um, so it might be something about the culture and the norms of the area. So that's speaking to the why within those family units, but why, why do we care? Do you know what I mean? I think um, that's, that's a really, um, if you're just talking to the average person on the street, I know that there's significance to these things, mm -hmm. but um, I think most people are like, why? Why are you doing this? What is, what is it? What's it going to lead to? What's the plan? Um, so I guess the why for me kind of harkens back to economics and just if people's potentials aren't fully realized that means that we're not as productive as a society as we could be so i think that's the overarching why that you mean globally or locally? um globally and locally yeah okay yeah so like on a community level on a uh, country level globally okay. um without people being as productive as they can be that just means that there's some output there's some unrealized uh scope mm -hmm. that's not happening so it's kind of there is a i think unfortunately a, a framework that people adhere to that that they don't understand that when something good is happening somewhere across the planet mm -hmm. it does affect it eventually ripples out and you know communities that that get stronger and more connected, mm -hmm. more vibrant, more self-sustaining. That affects everyone. Yeah, yeah. We're such a connected yes. world that eventually something that happens halfway across the world will have some sort of ripple effect. Yeah, I believe that 100%. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So where are you headed with your work? What is it? What's the grand plan? Uh, good question. Um, so I'm currently trying to formulate a sort of project that kind of works and looks at stereotype threat which is this psychological phenomenon that when we become more aware or like unconsciously or consciously about these stereotypes about our group that can potentially negatively affect our performance so looking to see whether that affects um, decision making in different ways and potentially whether it affects people's propensity to compete in different things. Um, like womanness or blackness or yeah, Grenadianess exactly. or whiteness or you know, <laughs> yeah, Russianness exactly. or Yeah, whatever. so a lot of the work has been done with gender, um, race. There are some papers that have looked at age, for example, so mm -hmm. age-related stereotypes to see whether that affects people's um, 
decisions, decisions. and the I think the first set of work on that started looking at, I believe it was race, and whether making salient the stereotypes about race affected um, students' performance in math and English type tests, and it found that it did. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, exactly. that was a big old yes. <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, um, but and then they started looking at gender, and mm -hmm. they also found that. And you mentioned women in math earlier, yeah, so there's this stereotype that math that uh, women aren't good at math, right. or at least not as good at math as yeah. men. A cultural so, bias begins, even if it's unconscious, by yeah. the educators where... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and that's real stuff. I think people hear about things like that and they think, oh, that's that's crazy. Nobody nobody does that. But, but absolutely. It's like unconscious. Yes, and it's that's completely the thing. unconscious. And that's the whole point. Is. <laughs> you don't even know you're doing it. Yeah. So there's a lot of work on that within um, psychology and sociology. There's starting to be some work in that in economics. Um, that's something I'm trying to pursue. I have a student who will be doing a summer research fellow with me mm. and she's interested in how different um, framings of stereotype threat can affect people's decision making. So there's a paper, a 2013 paper, that looked at stereotype threat in people's financial decision making mm. as measured as... Well, that's interesting. Um, Risk aversion and loss aversion. Um, Within the America, uh, uh, American culture or elsewhere? Yeah, it, it was with um, an American population. Yeah. So loss aversion has to do with the phenomenon of people disliking losses more than they like similar sized gains. So if you lose $5, it would hurt a lot more than if you get $5, it would feel good to you. Oh, interesting. Um, so that's actually one of those anomalies that uh, psychology has brought into the economic literature and the economic um, uh, thought. And risk aversion just has to do with people's preference for things that are less risky than say, more risky. Are they aligning that with uh, race and gender or are they just um, So general? they looked at gender. So the, they did a study where they kind of um, framed the task that people were doing as either being a task that men or boys did better at than women versus having no framing at all. And they found that when stereotype threat was present, men were, no, sorry, women were more risk averse and more loss averse than they would be otherwise. And that could potentially affect people's financial decision making because you might not make uh, worthwhile investments mm. because you are afraid of the possible risk. That, that makes sense. sense. I mean, I look at the idea of, of playing in stocks and things, I'm like, nope. It's <laughs> it's, it's, it's yeah, I know for sure. I'm a very risk averse person. So that study found that stereotype threat did affect people's um, risk and loss aversion. So she's interested in whether the way that you frame the stereotype threat. So is it that boys or men exert more effort in the task or is it because they have an innate ability to do mm. math versus women? So does that framing make a difference in terms of people's decision making? Interesting. So that's something we'll be working on over the summer. I um I know I've read some studies from I mean the seventies so it's a long time ago I'm sure things are different but um about that the the gender of, of male having um, 
having a more apt to take risks in general just mm -hmm. leaping off the tops of the roofs and the things like that and the, mm -hmm. you know while the little the little boys are you know playing superman jumping off the roof and the little girls are like you are crazy get down from there <laughs> you know I mean? yeah i climbed trees but the roof was a little too much <laughs> for me yeah and there's actually studies in economics um more recently um experimental economics which tries to measure people's risk preferences and a consistent finding is that women tend to be more risk averse than men as measured through these different risk aversion tasks yeah. so that still does exist um, there's also studies that show that women tend to be less competitive so the way that that's normally captured is you have the participants in the experiment do some sort of task it could be say like adding up um, two digit numbers and then they have to decide for a subsequent task what type of compensation they mm. prefer mm -hmm. one might be a piece rate so you get really? piece rate okay. so you get paid based on the number that you get correct or one might be a tournament or a competition where you're paired or matched with two or four other people and you get paid based on your performance relative to the other individuals. Mm -hmm. So we measure competition by how likely it is that the individual opts into the competitive task versus the piece rate task. Mm -hmm. And with studies like that, um, a consistent finding is that women are less likely to opt to compete versus being paid based on their uh, own performance. So within this fair competition, risk aversion, loss aversion, there's a lot of findings in economics that suggest that women tend to be less competitive, more risk averse, more loss averse than men. It's hmm. interesting. I wonder, I mean, I wonder if that just comes down to chemicals in the body. Um, maybe. Uh, what was interesting, uh, I recently went to a symposium on economic experiments in developing countries, and one of the keynote speakers Alessandra Kassar, she did a talk called Femina Economica. Oh, and <laughs> which was super catchy. It was, Sounds like a superhero. <laughs> and she did kind of delve into some of the biological and genetical factors, but she has done some studies, particularly in the competition frame, where it might not be that women are less competitive than men. It might be what are the incentives that we have with our experiments. Mm. So typically it's you get paid money based on your performance in the task. But perhaps if it's not money, but for example, a voucher that you can use to buy books and school supplies for your child, then they found that in these cases, women actually tended to be, if not as competitive, then possibly even more competitive than men. So it might be that- When you're nurturing someone else and exactly. your competition. Exactly. The mama bear feeling and all exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. So it might not be that there's this innate competitive um, preference or competitive gene, it's for lack of a better word, but it's really what is the, um, the motivation. environment yeah. of the competition. Yeah. What's I mean, that makes sense. Exactly. For sure. And as economists, we typically, like in experiments, we incentivize using money for the most part. So because we're doing that, are we actually not capturing a full sense of mm. someone's risk aversion, for mm -hmm. example, because we're only looking at it in a particular domain, not in another one. Mm -hmm. 
Do you remember the marshmallow experiment? Yes. From psychology. Is that? Yes, that's, that? yes. Yes. Okay. Um, so that actually led to a lot of work in economics to see, okay, with our theory, like, this was actually just teaching this a few weeks ago, discounted utility theory, we assumed that people would weigh future options consistently over time. Mm -hmm. Whereas consistent finding in experiments is that people don't do that. So we have what we call inconsistent preferences over time, or time inconsistency. If you're deciding between, it's a good example, you're deciding, oh, what was the authors of that study? So we had individuals choose, or they had individuals choose between a snack that they'd want to eat the next week, mm -hmm. and they had to choose between a healthy snack and an unhealthy snack. When they were choosing a week in advance, about 70% said, we'll choose the healthy snack. When the time actually came, that proportion flipped. So now, more people chose the healthy snack versus the unhealthy. The unhealthy over this healthy over the healthy snack. So their impulse kicks yes, in. Yes, but our economic theories at the time would say that this type of behavior shouldn't happen. Really? So that's one way. <laughs> so that's actually one field in which having these insights from psychology and these experimental results actually led to a adaptation of the theory. So now there's economic theories that account for the fact that maybe people are super impatient in the short run and have these impulses versus in longer term decisions where they're more patient. It's funny when you think about food as well because mm -hmm. the, the, I think that especially with things that are sweet or sugary, mm -hmm. or, I'm sorry, sugary or salty or whatever, that there's some part of your brain, the drug, yeah. the drug seeking brain goes, that, that looks way better in the moment, yes. that impulse thing. There's a yes. lot of research being done right now in a neuroscience yes. about impulse mm -hmm. and why the brain makes its decision to go left or right. Mm -hmm. um, and mice, there's a lot of uh, yeah, uh, mice experiments where you know, you're training the mice, oh, this is healthy, this is healthy, look at this reward you get. And then mm -hmm. they throw something <laughs> sugary and they're like, forget about it, I'm out for the sugar. Yeah, so. yeah. And there's some, there's a lot of bringing neuroscience into economics. There's a, a new field of sort called neuroeconomics. I'm not very um, yeah. uh, well read in that field, but there is that. And, you know, trying to tie people's decision making to what's happening in the brain, what's happening with our hormones, what's happening with the chemicals in our body, so. Which makes total sense to me. All of it, all these um, interdisciplinary, yeah. uh, theories, th it makes sense that you would use those because we are very complex. Yes. I mean, yes, we're also very basic, you know, food, sex, sleep, you know, that stuff. But but the fact, it, was it hard to get these various, I mean, you can only speak to your own experience, but hard to get these various um, disciplines to start talking to each other? Because I know that a lot of times, especially in academia, everyone's like, no, my thing is the coolest. <laughs> Y'all don't know what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think with real <laughs> economics, it's, um, it's getting more and more accepted within the wider economic um, discipline as being a legitimate um, way of approaching things. But I think in the beginning, there are a lot of obstacles and, you know, why do we care about mm -hmm. these things that's just maybe an aberration so but I think it's becoming more more accepted and it's actually um, there's within popular culture it's becoming 
one field of economics that's getting a lot more attention, the Nobel Prize winner this year in economics, Richard Thaler. He is a behavioral economist, um, one of the fathers of behavioral economics, and uh, Dan Ariely is another name that you'll hear a lot. He's a psychologist at Duke. Um, he also wrote a number of books that like predictably irrational and uh, predictably irrational. Yes, that's a great title. That, it was a great title. Uh, and is, have you read it? <laughs> yes, I have. I've book? used it in my intro to behavioral economics. Yeah, like so I think that'll be a great book. That um, a good reference. I'll read uh, that. Uh, Richard Thaler also has a number of books. He has one uh, called Nudge with Cass Sunstein, which looks at how you can use small changes in the environment to kind of nudge people into doing what things that might be more beneficial for them. And that in itself is a kind of controversial. I imagine um, that was actually going to be. And it was, I think, when it came out, it, there was a lot of press on this. Yeah. Um, and Cass Sunstein went on to be. I think it was in the Obama administration advising the health care sure. bill and there was and trying to and he was kind of an advocate for using some of these um, nudges within uh, trying to get people to for example save more for retirement that's one of the examples they use in the book a lot just changing the way in which the options are presented so if you go to a new job you have the option to get a retirement plan do you have to opt in to the plan or do you have to opt out of the mm, plan? So if it's an opt-in situation where you have to make that active decision to opt into the plan, a lot less people actually do versus an opt-out situation where you have to make the active decision to opt out of it. So that's one of the like small changes. Well, that and that model is used in so much and like marketing. Marketing is like, like that is the key. Yeah. It's like, hey, we put you on this list, but you don't have to be on this list if you, you don't want to. Exactly. And most people won't take the time to, because mm -hmm. it's just like, yeah. It's funny that you brought up Nudge right before I was going to ask, what about the Prime Directive? Well, everything goes back to Star Trek for me. Um, Actually, but, I'm not very well. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> the Prime Directive is, to, just to make it as general as possible, is that you just don't mess with um, cultures that are, that are, that are becoming. Mm -hmm. You don't instill your own ideology and, okay. and mm -hmm. politics and all that stuff. Um, but. I think again, this is a complicated issue in that how do you, how do you, go in and say to another culture that maybe isn't as far along, and say, hey, <laughs> there's some ideas, mm -hmm. but without getting in the way of their own well, naturally growth, exactly. because that's important too for a culture. Mm -hmm. um, that weird super imposing of especially yeah. American, you know, British, I mean, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. How do you? How do you stay out of your own way, I guess, yeah. in these works? Yeah, that's yeah, that's a difficult question and you gotta really weigh, okay, what you think is the benefits of what you're trying to do versus what's the potential harm yeah. of what you're trying to do and it's difficult choices to make sometimes. I think a good example of that just here in this country, for example, is the, um, the healthcare, mm -hmm. right? Um, here was... Obama and all the, the team work, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's been, it was coming a long time and they're like, okay, here's this healthcare, it's not perfect, 
but this is what you're going to do. And there was a mass outcry, like, I don't want to pay this. I don't want to, you know. Yep. There was, but because I think it, there was a lack of understanding, yeah. partially. Yeah. And a lot of rhetoric um, from both sides, obviously, the, both the talking heads on either side. And then people just get shut down. I think that the anxiety of yeah. trying to figure things out. Yeah, and as an ordinary citizen, you're... Okay, you're getting so much information is being bombarded at you. Mm -hmm. How do you filter and how do you sift through this to kind of, okay, get to the crux of it? Mm -hmm. Is this going to help me? Is it not? And what might be the different ways that this can affect my life? Yeah, so, so it's surprising to me with all these very learned people like yourself who are trying to help people understand all these different models that when it comes down to it, nobody does it. <laughs> They're not actually putting these things into place mm -hmm. in order to help people understand what's going on, mm -hmm. you know. Um, going back to the beginning of our conversation with the farmers, what what were the chances, you know, what was the percentage of, of people that were like, oh, you know what, this seed is good in really windy weather or really hot weather or, you know, whatever yeah. it is. Um, mm -hmm. um, so the farmers that we worked with, so just to clarify a little bit, the actual experiment that we did was as an economist would approach it an abstraction from their actual decisions in the mm -hmm. field. Mm -hmm. So it was we did a task which we thought was analogous to having that decision. Um, Staying out of the way in other words. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, part of the experiment itself was the participants had to discuss or they could talk about the task that they were doing. Some people actually did relate it to, okay, huh, if I'm choosing this risky lottery versus this one where I don't really know what the outcomes might be, it's kind of similar to, okay, if I'm choosing a new crop, I don't know what the outcomes can potentially be versus I've been using this um, variety of tomatoes for 20 years. I pretty much know if we have really good weather, it's going to have this amount. If we have terrible weather, we're going to have that amount. So they did kind of relate it to the task. Um, with those farmers, the organization that we worked with in Guyana, that's the National Agricultural Research and um, Extension Institute, they do work with farmers directly. And what they have are these demonstration plots, where so if there's a new variety of cassava, for example, that they would want farmers to potentially adopt because it gives higher yield than the one they currently do. They have these demonstration plots where the farmers can come see, they know what the output is, so that provides information mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. them. So I think that's one way, kind of getting that information that's important to informing their decisions. Teach a man to fish yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, it is. I'm always curious about experiments and theories and all these things because when you do say you have A, A is how somebody is behaving and acting and living their life, but we're going to do the experiment over here in B, you, then you have a loss, right? You have a loss of information, you have a loss of, of reality. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then you, that's when the theory comes in, right? Where yeah. You have to go, okay, well, it's not exact. Yes. And that I'm actually teaching an experimental economics course this term. And you know, at the beginning we're talking about experimental design. How do you go about designing an experiment? And one of the key things is realism where 
you want it to have some sort of link with what with what happens in reality, but you can't make it super complicated. It has to be simple enough that it maybe focuses on one or two key um, uh, predictions of the theory, for example, because the more complicated you make it, the less likely that your participants are to actually understand what is happening in the experiment. Mm -hmm. And with economic experiments, we're not allowed to deceive participants. So we can't, <laughs> I know, we can't, we can't say that this is what we're looking at when we're completely mm. not. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we try to make it so that participants actually understand the framework of the game or the experiment that they're doing. And a lot of the links with reality has to be with in the design, okay, this somewhat is analogous to what happens in real life. Yeah. Are, are your students, are they looking to, you know, one day grow up and be other professors? Or, or what are you finding that your students are taking your classes for? For what benefit? Um, some students take the class because they need to write a senior thesis in their senior year. Um, in our department, all of our students write a senior thesis. And normally it's some sort of empirical exercise where they form a research uh, question, then they gather some data, mm. then they analyze the data, discuss it, and that's the thesis. Uh, more students are interested in designing an experiment to answer the research question rather than getting the data from somewhere else. So some of my students who are juniors or sophomores in the class are interested in potentially that route when it comes to the senior thesis. I do have a lot of seniors in my class right now taking the class for interest. Um, at Union and Econ Department, maybe 10 to 15 percent of our graduates go on to do further work in economics and most of the time it's not directly after mm -hmm. their bachelors. Um, so students do it for interest, students do it because um, they might be using it in a future course in their thesis. Some students do it because it fits with their schedule. Yeah, sure. But um, with my current students, I think hopefully they'll utilize. If not, I'm going to do an experiment sometime in my lifetime, but at least the methodology and the thought process of how we go about analyzing and thinking about what makes a good experiment, what makes a bad experiment, that might somehow help them in something that they do. Yeah, I'm always life. curious to, 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 it would be interesting to follow the path of, of a lot of these mm -hmm. people and see how they how they move throughout the world from that point on. Because, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of information, that mm -hmm. it, and information is, is a powerful tool, you know, mm -hmm. to help you deal with even day to day. Has it changed, all the things that you've studied, changed the way you make your decisions? Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, at... Just economics and studying economics really has kind of framed the way in which I make decisions as being cost-benefit analysis. And sometimes that's to my detriment, but you know, what are the benefits of this? What are the costs of this? If the benefits outweigh the cost, then it's something worthwhile. If yeah. it's not, then it's not. Um, so you've moved those thought processes into your conscious brain instead of yeah. your subconscious brain, which yeah. is how most of the rest yeah, of the Yeah, I know, which is what right. people normally do, but now it's like an explicit thing. Yeah. This is how I approach pretty much every decision that I make. So 
Which is probably better. I mean, if you're going to qualify, it's instead of an impulse-driven or a subconscious-driven. Yeah. But then... Actually, thinking about what you're going to do is probably the healthier choice. When you're thinking about you're it, You're going to go for the apple, what actually, I'm saying, not the donut. I don't know about that. Because, <laughs> because I, like, I know this is the way I approach the decisions, but we all have these um, failings. Uh, yeah. I, when I was teaching a behavioral economics class, like one of the examples that I always use is there's this gourmet muffin that they sell at the um, cafeteria at school. And I know that this gourmet muffin probably isn't that great for me. It's probably not that healthy. It's red velvet with, you know, Ooh, cheese. Yummy. Um, cream cheese. Cream cheese. Yeah, you put cream cheese on anything. And then it. it's like you say, okay, no, it costs like $2. And maybe the benefits you get will be great in the short run but mm. then think about the long run but half of the time i would go get the red velvet muffin so mm. it's not i mean as a framework for making decisions it's great but that and then not <laughs> again if the neuroscience steps in and says why exactly. what part of the brain is lighting up or requiring this mm -hmm. treat versus healthy choice yeah um which is you know at the heart of of the weight loss gain yeah. mechanism <laughs> when we're trying to make those decisions. Um, it's, you know, I look at human beings as this, you know, very interesting species, creature roaming the planet, but, and I realize like, where I look to, like, um, I'll just pick something, a chimpanzee or maybe an elephant or, a, you know, all these various animals, and you can see them doing the same thing mm -hmm. right and some do it and they do it differently like for example uh, elephant they're very pack oriented they're very mm -hmm. into their tribe and so <clears throat> if one is needing help they'll all go and help <clears throat> chimpanzees also have their tribal situation but they're not as they're not as friendly <laughs> not as nice about it they're like eh, i don't know that guy's kind of a jerk or let's yeah. leave him behind or whatever it is you know and i always think that's so fascinating mm -hmm. Um, I know we spoke about mice and watching how mice make their decisions, but is there a lot of that in, in behavioral economics where you look at how animals make um, their choices? So even octopus, they're like, oh, yeah. hey, that snack looks good, and they'll do. Yeah. They'll so there's not as much as I'm aware, but there's a lot of um, links to animal studies that some of the findings that we see behavioral economics that we also see with animal studies mm. so one game that is used in economics to kind of measure people's altruistic or fairness norms is called the dictator game so if we're playing <laughs> that's all awesome. you get a little hat a little mustache <laughs> So if you're playing a dictator game, two people, uh, one person gets an endowment, a certain amount of money, say $10, and they have the option to share some of that with the other person, and the other person has no role in the game at all. So if you have the $10, you can either keep it all for yourself, or you can send some of it to me, whatever proportion of it you'd like. Now, um, standard economic theory would say that a self-interested person is who's interested in maximizing their own returns would keep all of the money. But consistently, people send 
some proportion of the money to the other individuals. And they also found that with studies with chimpanzees. Mm -hmm. So there are like linkages with seeing how um, animals behave. Uh, most of the studies I've seen has been with chimps and it's very similar to what we find with humans. There's another variant of the game called the ultimatum where now that you sent me an offer, I can reject it completely if I think for whatever reason, it's an unfair offer. So if you sent me $1 and mm. keep $9 of mm. it for yourself, mm. I can say I reject this and then we, get, we both get nothing. Again, standard theory might say $1 is better than zero. So I should accept anything that's above zero. Yeah, but that's I read a not little bit about found. this. Yeah, it's and again, they've done this work with chimps, mm -hmm. and it's very similar in terms of. But don't be people, human beings, behave differently when they're being observed? Is it? I mean, a chimpanzee probably also has the wherewithal to know it's being mm -hmm. observed. Other animals, maybe not so much. Mice don't yeah. care. You know, um, or maybe they do. I don't know, because uh, I'm not an animal mm -hmm. behaviorist, but. Um, does that make a difference in the research? Um, because if you're watching me yeah. and we're playing the dictator game, I'm going to be like, oh, I don't want to be a dictator. <laughs> you know what I mean? Even yeah, so there's, there's like, an inherent bias. So there's like levels of anonymity and then there's levels of, um, there's like single blind or double blind studies where you don't actually know who you're playing with. You're playing with someone in the other room. Do you know the name of the game? <laughs> uh, no, so we, okay, we yeah. normally don't refer to it <laughs> within the instruction. You'll be playing the dictator game, or you? No, so that's another, <laughs> that's another um, design principle. Keep the instructions and the framing of the instructions as neutral okay. as possible. Good, so good. we're not calling it the dictator game, which in itself might, you know, might bring be a some- Exactly. So we're not calling it a dictator game. We're not calling it the ultimatum game. Um, <laughs> but we frame it. It's like, you get $10, you have the chance to share it with somebody. I'm trying to remember, why do they call it the dictator game? Yeah, because you no. have all the power. You have all the power, yeah. sure. Yeah. yeah. But it's so fascinating. I'm humans, huh? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Craziness. Um, do you have any... Uh, I, every time I speak with a professor, I like to say, do you have any books coming out? Because I know that is part uh, of your, your um, shtick is that you have to, no, of course, No produce. books at the moment. Well, and within economics as well, it's less book-oriented oh, okay. and more, more article and yeah, paper-oriented. Yeah, sure. So I have a few um, under um, that I've sent off for review in journals, right. so I'm picking people. Journals that I can't read because yeah, y'all are fancy and you don't let us I think in most, not just economics, but I think in a lot of disciplines, um, journals are restricted yeah. access. Um, some some specific article. Why is that? I know that's a tangent, but why? Um, it seems like you, you would want people to read things that great minds I mean, there's probably some it. cost involved that they're trying to recoup because then you sell the licenses to the libraries oh, or these the journals or yeah. the, the fancy um so there's probably some <laughs> there's probably some cost involved yeah. there um but they do sometimes depending on the article have it be open access but mm -hmm. everything yeah normally isn't as a woman do you um do you find yourself you know trying to encourage other young girls to, to come up in, in your field and things? Or yeah. Like yeah, and that uh, that's something that because there's this underrepresentation of women in economics, it's something that the 
discipline as a whole has been trying to work on. Um, sure. The American Economic Association, they've um, they've done well, not the association, but there's a lot of studies been done of why do women kind of like shy away from economics and some of the things that have come up is one there might be a confidence issue um, it might be that women react poorly or more poorly to grades than men so if a girl gets a C in an economics course like your intra economics course you'd say okay this is not for me versus a boy who gets a C in his economics course would be like yeah it's fine I'll just move on so that's might be that's part of it and that's something that um, yeah, the discipline has been trying to mm. work um, strategies. How do we try to engender more confidence in girls? How, how do we? How long have you been teaching? Uh, this is my second year. Oh, your second. So year. it's so you don't have really a lot new of to me as well. To say, uh, my next question is going to be: Are your classes more? Uh, are you seeing more girls in your um, females in your classes? It. Probably like years, thirty probably to forty percent. Oh, I'm in my current class, it's twelve students. We have twenty-five, like three, three girls and three boys, three women and three men. Yeah, because they're right. pretty much yeah, they're grown ups. They're grown ups. <laughs> um, it is hard to see an eighteen-year-old as a grown up. <laughs> no offense to all eighteen-year-olds out there, but it just makes so it's me like twenty-five. Makes yeah. me feel old every time. I'm like, oh, I know. So it's like I'm so out of touch with the young folks Kids these days. I, I trying to <laughs> introduce me to was it venmo oh yeah venmo's day? great and I'm, I'm a big fan i went on the app to download it and then i saw that it was also like there's a social media app. yeah you don't you can it. turn that off i okay. turned mine off because i don't want people knowing because i was like yeah um no that's not this is what the first thing i see when i'm trying to sign up so that kind of like turned me off of getting it but i right. probably look at you, it again you because i'm like how why are these people putting all of their information because people that's there. that's the world we live in x now. paid why yeah for a cupcake or um, you know, or an apple i know and i feel like the world is changing i used to be at some point technologically savvy and then somewhere Can't along the lines it's it just possible. yeah like i think when social media just kind of yeah waved over me and i'm like I don't and know it's emoji based which everybody loves oh. their emojis so yeah and i'm trying to figure out what do these emojis actually mean some of the more obscure ones do you want to sound funny you know all the different hands and stuff um i thought i was sending people the pointy hand and then i look closer because you know you're kind of lucky you just hit the thing i was like holy crap i've been flipping people off <laughs> i had sent that to half a dozen people and i was like oh my gosh i'm so sorry and they're like oh we thought you were being funny i was like no i thought uh, i was doing the pointy finger yeah i think i had a similar experience there's like a face that i thought was a happy face or something along those lines apparently it was a sarcastic face yeah, and i'm like so hard okay they need to have like little captions skype used to have that they would little be captions with Okay, this face means that. You know, somewhere on Google, there's a map I that's like the C's candy thing that you lift it up and it tells oh. you what each thing is. Sounds like too much work. I'll just <laughs> stick to the basic emojis yeah, that I know I for know. sure. It makes life mean. a lot easier. Yeah. Kaywana, this has really been fascinating. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh to, no, thanks for having me. To it's come been... to Yasmin's kitchen and talk with me here in Schenectady. <laughs> so, is there? Um, can you recommend a couple books just for the listeners that might who might be interested? Uh, layman like myself that mm -hmm. lay women I don't know what's the is it gender <laughs> but I don't even I don't know anymore anyway um, um, that might 
yeah so there's the Dan Ariely book I think if you're interested in behavioral economics um, the Dan Ariely book predictably irrational Richard Thaler nudge um, Dan Ariely also has a number of other books um, as this Thaler I can't remember their names at the moment there is Oh my goodness. Nudge sounds uh, really interesting. Daniel Kahneman, mm -hmm. who also was a Nobel Prize winner in economics in 2002. Also very um, important. Do you remember the Thinking name? Fast and Slow. Thinking Fast and Slow. Yes. Okay. Thinking Fast and Slow. And I can slow. put these links on heyhumanpodcast.com. Do people get very excited in your class as they learn these theories and possibilities? I think so, That's hopefully. Yeah. Um, some students would say, oh, I've never really thought about this in this way before. Um, and especially with the behavioral class, we talk about a lot of biases that people have when they're making decisions. And like, and you, when you recognize it in your, um, in your own decision-making, it's like, okay, maybe that's something that's moving great. on that I can consciously at least think about. That's great. Um, I think the more we um, can facilitate global humans, mm -hmm. the better. And I, I do believe that it starts with ourselves and then radiates outward for sure. Yes. Any yes. women in that pile? Um, Iris Bonet or Bonet, I'm probably Is not. Is it B-O-N-E-T? B-O-H-N-E-T. Oh. I'm not pronouncing Bonnet, her name correctly. Bonnet, so she has a book called What Works? Gender Equality by Design. So it's kind of utilizing behavioral economics and behavioral theories in kind of fashioning a workplace, for example, and things that can kind of help promote okay. um, equality within the workplace. And again, her name? Sorry. Iris Bonet, Bonet or Bo Bonet. B O H N E T. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Awesome. All right. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. It I has really appreciate been your time. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah, um, alright everyone, go out there and be global. <laughs> I don't know. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thanks.